Bibles to 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. We'll read from verse 12 down to verse uh, 25. Let's hear again, once again, the inspired and infallible word of God. Paul writes, verse 12, Now if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we have found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ, all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, after those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Let's pray. Once again, our God and our Father, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures given to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray, our God, that you would increase our faith and our hope this night, that as we dwell upon the certainties relating to Christ's return and his resurrection and our resurrection that will follow. We pray, our God, that by your Spirit you would be pleased to teach us, to instruct us in your Word. Come by your Holy Spirit and grant us all the grace that we need to understand and to believe the truth as it is in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Some months ago, in connection with some other work that I was engaged in doing, I punched into my computer, uncertainty, to see what came up on the internet. And I was staggered. I did not know whether to laugh or to cry. In fact, I ended up doing both. Because this particular website on uncertainty said that Uncertainty is to be embraced as part of life. Security and certainty, it went on to say, is an insipid thing. 
Life is not about knowing. Life is about having to change. Life is about taking the moment to make the most of it, not knowing what will happen next. And it advised us to be anxious, uh, so to avoid becoming anxious and afraid, but to embrace uncertainty. To me, that is the fruit of perhaps 200 years of skepticism, beginning in the Enlightenment and the deep-rooted skepticism that pervades so much of the wisdom of this world. We read in the Word of God words that are absolutely certain. We open our Bibles at the very beginning and we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And we read on in the Word of the promises given to Adam and Eve even after they had sinned. The promises given to Noah. The promises given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The promises given to David concerning great David's greater son. The promises that are yes and are men in Jesus Christ. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is soaked in certainty. There is nothing skeptical to be found. God trades in yeses and amens. You remember Adoniram Judson who went from this country uh, to the Far East, to Burma, Myanmar, as it is now. And he used to say, my future is as bright as the promises of God. Well, there's nothing like that on that website that I looked at. I want this evening to come to 1 Corinthians 15 and these verses that we read and look with you at three absolute certainties relating to Christ and to all who are in Christ. These things were written by the Apostle Paul to counteract those in Corinth who were asserting there is no resurrection of the dead. The reasons for them saying that are not given to us in any detail here, but it is evident throughout the rest of the New Testament that the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the future resurrection, there were elements of confusion, not only in Corinth, but in other places. Paul is absolutely clear here. He asserts three things are certain and are beyond then contradiction. Certain because they are rooted and grounded in the gospel. They lie at the very heart of the gospel that he has proclaimed. And the first is this. The first absolute certainty is this. Jesus Christ remains alive following his resurrection from the dead. You may remember, let's put this in context, you may remember in the opening verses of chapter 15, the Apostle Paul has summarized the gospel in a very crisp and clear way. He says, I delivered, verse 3, to you, first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. He has described these things as of first 
importance. Deny those things and you have no Christian faith whatsoever. Then in verses 12 to 19, which we did read, he's dealing with matters relating to if there is no resurrection. He's tracing out the consequences. If there are some in Corinth who are saying these things, have they realized? He's saying, have you realized what you're actually saying? What the implications are if you deny the resurrection? So you have this repeated use of the word if. If, if, if some of you say there is no no resurrection, then first of all, Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead. And then he goes on and says, if there is no resurrection, then our preaching is a waste of time. And if there is no resurrection, your faith is worthless. You're actually still in your sins. There is no salvation. Then he goes on to say, then we are false witnesses. We've declared to you these things. He's talked about himself as one who was a witness to the resurrected resurrection of Jesus Christ. He appeared to him. He appeared to many others. But Paul is saying, if Jesus Christ is not being raised from the dead, then it's all a pack of lies. And we are false witnesses. And what about then, he says, what about those who have died? Those who've fallen asleep in Jesus, they perish. They perish eternally. There is no eternal life. And then he lastly says in verse 19, we're the most of all people, we are the most to be pitied if all our hopes are then vanquished by death. All hope of eternal life snuffed out. It's hypothetical. It's a hypothetical if, because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And therefore you come to verse 20, and here is a cry of great confidence. It's one of the great buts of the Bible. But now Christ is risen from the dead. That is a very forceful statement on the part of the Apostle. It's not simply saying that Christ rose from the dead on a certain day in history, the third day after he died. He is asserting that Christ is risen and is alive and remains alive and is permanently the risen Lord and Savior. Do not for one moment minimize the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not something to be celebrated once a year at Easter. It is not a normal everyday event, but it lies at the very heart. It is fundamental to the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is a stupendous declaration. It is a vindication by God the Father of Jesus Christ who died for our sins. He died, he was buried, and God raised him from the dead. He never saw corruption in the grave. This event, this stupendous event, then belongs to the realm of the supernatural. A whole new age dawns with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is God acting decisively with regard to his Son. At a peculiar point in history, yes, but it has a permanent 
consequence. Because Jesus Christ is the beginning of a new humanity. Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. The widow of Nain's son was raised from the dead. Lazarus, as we mentioned this morning, the brother of Mary and Martha, was raised from the dead. Many rose from the dead on the, Christ, on the day that Christ died, when the temple was, curtain was torn in two. The graves were opened and many people returned into Jerusalem. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is on a different scale. It's a different kind of event. All those that we've mentioned, they died again. They died a second time. And they await the resurrection when Christ returns. But when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, death did not swallow him up in any way. He was raised to life and remains alive to this very day. He will never ever die. Remember how the Apostle Paul put it in Romans and chapter 1. In those opening words, again he summarizes for us something of the gospel which he preached, promised through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, verse 2, and then verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God, with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now that does not mean for one moment that he was not the son of God before the resurrection. He always was the son of God. He remained the son of God when he took flesh and blood. But now he was declared by the resurrection, he was declared to be the son of God with power, the power of God. This was God declaring, this was God speaking, this was God vindicating his son according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. If you like, you can put it this way. When Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, he entered into a new phase of his life, his existence and his power. And a new age dawned and a new humanity was created we are then in verses 20 to 23 in our text paul here is declaring the consequences of christ's resurrection the outworking of salvation for all those who have come to believe in him jew and gentile from all the nations of the earth you and i are included if we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a picture then of Christ's final and utter supremacy. The one who has been raised from the dead. Because ultimately even death itself is going to be destroyed by him. But that day has not yet come. But he has destroyed death in principle. But it will yet be worked out in the hearts and lives and the experience of every single one for whom he died. I want you this evening then with me to lift up your eyes and behold the living Lord Jesus Christ. And come with faith 
and with adoring wonder as you gaze upon the one who has all power and all authority. He is the sovereign Lord, exalted by his Father. My desire is to make you stronger in your faith as you live in this present evil age. You face Satan. You face all the problems and difficulties of this life. You must face death. And we need a strong faith in order to face all those enemies. But our life is primarily a life of faith, a life of hope, a life of joy, not despair. We're not going, I trust, to fall foul of the hopelessness of the world around us, this age, and to focus and embrace, have to embrace uncertainty. Yes, there are many things that are uncertain, but that does not mean to say there are things which are absolutely certain. And the first of those is that Jesus Christ remains alive following his resurrection from the dead. But the second absolute certainty is there in also in verse 20. Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection harvest. Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection harvest. Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That is those who have died united to Jesus Christ by faith. They have fallen asleep. That does not mean soul sleep. It is a figure of speech. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 14, a Christian, when they die, falls asleep in Jesus. And that is a beautiful picture. It is a picture of a mother with a distressed baby in her arms. And she quietly takes that baby, sings to that baby, soothes that baby, and that baby eventually falls asleep, safe in her arms. Believers die safely because they die in the arms of Jesus Christ. They remain joined to him. They can never be separated from Christ, not even in death. Because Christ is risen from the dead. He is our sovereign Lord. He is alive. And he cares for each and every one of his sheep. However insignificant you feel you may be, if you have been purchased with the blood of Christ, you are precious to him. And when the time comes for you to leave this world, you will fall asleep in Jesus. What Paul says here applies then to all who die before the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ. At this point in this letter, Paul is not dealing with the general resurrection of the wicked and the just. That is dealt with elsewhere. You remember Matthew and chapter 25. 
Or you remember chapter 13 of Matthew, the parable of the wheat and the tares. The harvest is the end of the age, the tares will be burnt, and then the wheat will be gathered in. Paul is not dealing with that aspect of the return of Christ. He is narrow. He is focused on what will happen to those who have trusted in Christ, those who have fallen asleep in Christ. He is dealing then with the righteous. He is dealing with those who have been saved and washed clean by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who have heard the preaching of the word of God, those who have believed and have died or will yet die, but they die believing in Christ. And what does Paul say of this Lord Jesus? He is the first fruits. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, if you know your Bibles, that will not be a strange idea to you at all. The first fruits were the first sheaf of the harvest. In the Old Testament, that was to be brought into the temple. It was to be offered to God as a thank offering. You can read of that in Leviticus chapter 23 and verses 10 following. And there was a feast of the first fruits, but it was the promise of the full harvest that was yet to come. It was consecrated. And in a sense, then the whole harvest was consecrated. But this was the first signs, the first fruits. It's a picture used by Paul in the next chapter because he speaks of the household of Stephanus. In verse 15, the first fruits of Achaia. These were the first people to be converted in that province, but there were many more who followed. It's also used in parallel with the idea of the down payment. That is the crucial payment, the pledge of more that is to come. When you take out a mortgage, you put down a deposit. And you are promising you are engaging then to pay the rest of the money that will come until you've paid off what you owe. And that is the earnest, the guarantee of our inheritance. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He is saying Jesus Christ is the first fruits. He is the one who has been raised from the dead and there is yet a harvest, a full harvest to come that he will gather in. And that is a harvest of all those who have fallen asleep in Christ. And he goes back then to Adam in verse 21. He says, by Adam, by man, came death. Verse 22, as in Adam, all die. He goes right back. Humanity is divided up. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. In Adam, Adam brought sin and death into the world. And he was powerless to do anything about sin and death. But in contrast, Jesus Christ has come. And he says, yes, by man came death. But by man also came the resurrection of the dead. Yes, he says, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. He's taking us a step further here now. He's defining for us what resurrection of the dead actually means. 
all in Christ shall be made alive. By man, by Christ, came the resurrection of the dead. And there is a definite order that is stated there in verse 23. Each one in his order. See, he's spelling it out again. Each one in his order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. That's when we will see the great resurrection, harvest. And that is guaranteed. That's an absolute certainty, according to the Apostle Paul. But each in their order, and that's a military term. That's a term that the soldiers would use. So it's Christ and then those who are Christ's at his coming. Christ has been raised from the dead. And then there is a future resurrection of all who have died and fallen asleep in Christ. Christ then is the forerunner. Christ is the one who has gone before us. Christ has paved the way. It's a new age. It's a new race. It's a new humanity that will not be subject to death any longer. Sin and all the consequences of sin, death in particular, will be banished. And that brings us then to the third absolute certainty. You who believe, you will be raised from the dead. And you will be conformed, as we've been considering earlier this evening, to the image of Christ. You will be raised from the dead. You who have heard the preaching of the gospel, you who have believed, you who are, in the words of verse 2, seeking to hold fast, That word which Paul preached to them, unless you believed in vain. When will you be raised from the dead? At his coming. Each one in his own order. That means that your faith is fixed upon Jesus Christ who has been raised from the dead and you are looking in faith to the day when he returns And you will be raised from the dead. And faith then becomes hope. And faith and hope becomes joy and expectation and anticipation of that great day. Notice what the Apostle Paul says later on in the chapter. In verse 45. So it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Then verse 49, as we have borne the image of the man of dust, a reference back to Adam, so we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man, Jesus Christ. And then in verse 52, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death 
is swallowed up in victory. The death of death as a consequence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that our earnest expectation is no dream. It's not something that's going to evaporate into thin air when the day comes, when the crunch comes, when we die and when Jesus Christ returns. This is something absolutely certain. Our resurrection, your resurrection from the dead. It is as certain as Christ's being raised from the dead. It is the reason why you will be raised from the dead. Christ has been raised from the dead. You are united and you will remain united to Jesus Christ. Whatever happens to you, your body and spirit remain united to Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that includes death. Death is not going to destroy that bond between Christ and you. That is something which is indissolvable. What kind of salvation, after all, would it be if we live our lives with full of this hope and this anticipation and this expectation and then death swallows us up? What kind of salvation would that be? That's why Paul says, if in this life we only have hope in Christ, we're of men the most pitiable. Christ's glorious resurrection is the pledge and the proof of the resurrection of all who believe in him. We are joined forever to our living head. And was that not our Lord's promise when he was here upon earth? Do you remember these words in John chapter 6, verse 39 and 40? He said, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And in case we've missed the significance of that, it is repeated then in verse 40. This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. That is implied in John chapter 10 and verse 28. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. You must give that statement its full force. They will never perish. Death will not take them and destroy them and conquer them. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And there is a double guarantee. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. We cannot trace that through, the implications of that. We're focusing upon Christ as the first fruits of the resurrection. So do you understand then what Paul is saying here? Let me try and summarize it. Because there's an already and a not yet aspect to our salvation. Already... Christ has been raised from the dead. Already you have believed 
And if you have believed, you have the Spirit of God as that guarantee, as that down payment of that inheritance. And in one sense, you have already been raised with Christ. Paul says that in Colossians and chapter 3. But you have been raised with Christ and you have all the limitations still of your physical body. But there is a not yet aspect. We are not yet conformed to the image of Christ. Death has not yet been swallowed up. We still live in this body and we await the return of Christ and the resurrection of the body. But the process is absolutely certain. There's an order. The order already is in place. Christ has been raised from the dead. And he who has begun a good work will bring it to completion. When? In the day of Jesus Christ. There is something very comforting to know this. Because you see, our Lord Jesus Christ, he has not entrusted your final, complete salvation to you, nor to any deputy. He's not appointed anybody else. He himself, together with his Father, together with the Spirit of God, will raise you from the dead. He has taken that responsibility upon himself. So your confidence is not merely in a promise. Your confidence is in the person who makes the promise. Your confidence is in Jesus Christ. Your confidence is in the one who has been already raised from the dead. You gaze upon him as the living head who will come again in glory, the incarnate God, will one day come again and bring you to glory with himself and conform you to the likeness of Jesus Christ himself. Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. We've already got a foot in heaven. Our citizenship is there. From which we er eagerly wait for the Savior. There's the earnest expectation, the anticipation. What will he do? He will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. You doubt the power of Christ to raise you from the dead? See, that's why I've been emphasizing, why Paul is emphasizing that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead by the power of God. This is the one who is our creator, Jesus Christ. He's able to subdue all things to himself, death included. There is no one greater with greater power than Jesus Christ. And Paul is asserting then these things very, very clearly to us. So I must ask you at this point, before we proceed any further with any further application, do you believe 
that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead? That's the first question. Are you fully persuaded? Are you fully convinced? Have you believed the testimony? Have you believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ? If you have, then happy are you. Your hope is in Christ. Your hope is sure. Your hope is certain. Your hope is bound up with Christ, the first fruits of the resurrection. You can go on in faith. You can abound then in hope because there is a, an inheritance laid up for you in heaven, kept by God. And you are kept for that day, according to the Apostle Peter. But if you do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and if you have not entrusted your body and soul to him, then what must I say to you? What can I say? Can I give you a hope? While you remain as you are? My friends, if you do not trust in Christ, you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. You are in a hopeless, helpless state. You are without God and without hope in this world. And you will perish if you remain in that state. To die in your sins is the worst possible way to die. Sins unforgiven. Sins that will bring the wrath of God down upon your head. Your future is dark. Your future is bleak. There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. And your lot will be, as we saw this morning, that weeping, that wailing, that gnashing of teeth, that outer darkness. That is no empty threat. That is no lie. fact is without Christ you perish but if you trust in Christ if you will turn to Christ then these promises will be yours these certainties will be yours there is no reason why anyone sitting here this evening should go to hell Christ is able to save you here and now from your sins I repeat that verse I gave you this morning. Whoever, whoever believes on him has everlasting life. And that everlasting life embraces resurrection from the dead. You children that are here this evening, do you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you turned from your sins and put your trust and confidence in him? Yes, you say, I've been brought up in a Christian home. I go to Sunday school. I read my Bible. 
I pray sometimes. None of those things in and of themselves will save you. The crucial question is, have you come to Jesus Christ as a lost, guilty, condemned sinner? And have you cried out to Jesus Christ for mercy? I don't know anyone who has cried out to Christ for mercy and whom he has said, no, shunned you, turned you away. There are many here this evening who will tell you quite the contrary. When they cried out to Jesus Christ for mercy, they found mercy. They found pardon. They found forgiveness. They found peace. And their lives were changed. And now they have a hope. This hope of which we are speaking. These things that we are considering this evening are of great importance. And they are truths that bring comfort to our hearts. They comfort those of you who have suffered bereavement, a loved one who trusted in Christ. If our brother Harry Heist goes home to glory in the next day or so, what will be his confidence? What will be the confidence of his wife and his daughter and his grandchildren. The Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. We face death in this world. It is a reality. Unless Christ returns, we shall all die. But again, remember the comfort is this we fall asleep in. Jesus. We don't sorrow as the world sorrows. They have no hope. None of those whom the Father has given to the Son will ever be lost. Christ has undertaken that. The Father has undertaken that. But this thing that we are speaking of here this matter is also to be the focus of our hope. That is, Christ raised from the dead, the firstfruits, and then the resurrection of those who believe in him. God has reached down to us in our misery, in our lostness, the Bible tells us again and again that the wages of sin is death. And yet, we have this hope of resurrection. But our hope, and let me be, make this very, very clear, our hope should not focus upon death, our death itself. That is short-sighted. Our hope is to focus on what lies beyond death our resurrection from the dead. Death in itself is an evil. I go to many funerals these days, and that note seems to be missing. Death is unnatural. Death is an evil. Death is an invader into this world. It does not belong to this world 
that Christ is creating and recreating. But it remains an evil and we must face the consequences of our sin. We will die. But there, yes, when we die, we go to be with Christ. We are, our spirit goes to be with Christ. And Paul says that's much better than remaining in the body. But what happens to our body? It is separated from our spirit. It is laid in the grave. It returns to dust. That's not my hope. Because death has not yet been conquered. My faith and my hope rests in the hope of eternal life. Full salvation that is not secured at death. I am looking and waiting and anticipating the day when Jesus Christ will come and do a mighty work of power and raise my body and your body and the body of thousands who have trusted in him. And he will join us with our spirit and we will be utterly conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Pastor McDermott read Romans chapter 8. It's significant that there in Romans chapter 8, when Paul speaks of glorification, in verse 30, Moreover whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. It's as if it's already taken place. It's in the same tense. Yet it is future. What is Paul saying? It's absolutely certain. Your glorification, that is what you are waiting for. That is what you are longing for. When you come and celebrate the Lord's Supper, what do you do? You proclaim the Lord's death until when? Your death? No, until he comes. Until he comes. And when he comes, that will be the day of resurrection. Jesus said, didn't he? At that feast, I won't eat of the fruit of the vine. I won't drink, rather, the fruit of the vine. I won't eat this bread with you until I come in my Father's kingdom. And then there will be a mighty messianic banquet, a feast. That's how it's portrayed. And who are there? Oh, these men who died thousands of years ago. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. They will all be there together with all those whom Christ has purchased with his blood. That's the day. That is the hope of the Christian. Do not curtail your hope. When you die, that is not the end. You die. Your spirit goes to be with Christ. Your body is laid in the grave. Paul goes on in here in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, well, does someone have a problem with that? How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Go home and read his answer to that. If you doubt that, he says, foolish one. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. What you sow... You do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. And then he goes on, using those analogies. And then he goes on to say, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, and it is raised 
in incorruption. It's a long time ago since I buried my father. That was the first time I'd really come face to face with death, close in the family. It was, it's a cultural thing in Britain. I don't think it's quite the same today, but in my day, if someone died in your family, the children were sent away. They never attended the funeral. I never attended the funeral of my grandmother, to whom I was very close. The first time I was 40, and my father died. I stood looking at my father's coffin being lowered into the, into the grave. And the thought came to me, how is that body ever going to be raised from the dead? And I had to work my way back through this passage. I thought I had the answers. But when I was faced with the reality of death, I found that my faith and my hope was far weaker than I ever imagined. But it was regained and restored by returning to the scriptures. If you ever come to England, and I take you to London, or Pastor Jeremy takes you to London, I'll take you to Bunhill Fields. Bunhill Fields is a Protestant cemetery. There are probably 40,000 bodies that have been buried there. It's outside the walls of the city. You'll find there the tombs of men like John Owen and Thomas Goodwin and Isaac Watts. I tell you, that place is going to be some place on the day of resurrection. <laughs> it's going to be noisy. The saints are raised from the dead, hundreds of them, thousands of them, faithful servants of Christ. The focus then of our hope is not death. That doesn't mean we despair, but we look beyond death to the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. Can we begin to imagine what that day will be? It's beyond anything else that we've ever experienced. It will be a display of God's love. It will be a display of God's power. And on that day, we will experience the conquest of death. And it will trouble us no more. You know the picture that is drawn for us in Revelation and chapter 21. There, the Apostle John, in his vision, sees a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven, the first earth, has passed away. He sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem. He hears the voice from heaven. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Can you begin to take that in? That is the fulfillment of all the promises that God has made to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob 
to all the saints down through the ages. And what does it then say? God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death. Nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. He who sat on the throne, behold, I make all things new. And John was told, write, for these words are true and they are faithful. And that's where our trust and confidence lies. The one who sits on the throne is our risen Lord and Saviour, risen Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. He is at the right hand of his Father. He is crowned with glory and honour. He prayed while he was here on earth. He wanted those who belonged to him to be with him to see the glory that the Father had given him before the foundation of this world. And we shall. We shall see that glory. I don't know what will be more wonderful. The fact that we shall see Christ in his glory or that we shall be glorified and see him and love him without any sin, without any diminishing of love. You know how John puts it in 1 John and chapter 3. Writing there, he says, Beloved, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. The world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, and we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. O oh Lord, our God, we come to you very conscious of our weakness, conscious of our frailty and the uncertainty of the number of days we shall live on this earth, but at the same time certain of the joy that will be ours when Jesus Christ returns in glory and brings us to be with himself forever. When you will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain. Lord, we long for that dwelling, that dwelling place where you will dwell with your people 
We long to see the new heavens, the new earth, the home of righteousness. Give us grace then to continue to lay hold upon Christ. Increase our faith, increase our hope, increase our joy and that great sense of anticipation and exhilaration that will be ours and should be ours now as we await the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, come. Come, Lord Jesus Christ. Come in your glory for you, for your people, that you may be glorified in them and through them. Lord, we look to you to do these things, to fulfill all your promises of salvation for us. Hear us, we pray, our Saviour. In your name we pray. Amen.